are listening to Law and Gospel Wednesday Bible Study, August the 14th in the year of our Lord, 2019. And we are going to be examining Hebrews chapter 11. It just so happens that this is also the epistle reading for this coming Sunday. So what an opportunity to take a deeper look at one of the lessons and You may recall two weeks ago, we studied the first part of Hebrews 11. This is the great chapter on faith, beginning, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And when we take a look at faith, what do we end up discovering? We end up discovering that those in the Old Testament had faith that the Messiah would be coming. In fact, we looked partly at the first part of Hebrews 11, where Abram was hearing the promise that through his elderly wife and himself, a son would be born, name's going to be Isaac, and his descendants will be as many as the stars of heaven and the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. We're going to begin with verse 17, Hebrews 11. And this really answers a question a lot of people have. When Abraham was told to sacrifice Isaac, I've often asked individuals, why would he do that? Because he knew that through Isaac would come the salvation of the world when the Messiah is finally born. So why would he go ahead to kill Isaac? Why wouldn't he just question what God was telling him to do? But he did not. And he would first knife Isaac, and then he would burn him on the altar. Well, Hebrews 11, beginning with verse 17 helps us to understand what faith Abraham had. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So that sets the stage. He's raising his knife. He's about to plunge it into his son, who's lying on the makeshift altar. And what happens? Well, before what happens, what was the understanding that Moses had? It's found in verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. What does that mean, figuratively speaking? Well, let's remember that Isaac came from a womb that was way past childbearing age. One could say that the womb was dead, and yet Isaac was born. And because of that great miracle that had occurred, Abraham was under the impression, yes, even if I obey God and sacrifice Isaac, God will raise him from the dead. 
Now, I'm not aware of anyone else who had been raised from the dead prior to the time of Abraham. Where did Abraham get that faith? Well, when God makes a promise, the Holy Spirit creates in us faith, and we do not doubt any longer, even though we don't have any evidence for it. For example, Christians believe that a man from Nazareth was crucified and our sins were paid for by his death. There's no evidence of that, except the word of God. But it doesn't make any sense. And yet we are willing to die for it. And the writer to the Hebrews is going to give some examples of that. So Abraham was ready to obey the will of God and sacrifice his son. Now, we know what happened. A ram appeared, and he sacrificed that instead. And who was that ram representing? None other than Jesus Christ. Going on with verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. When he blessed them, he looked ahead. And those blessings would have come also from the Holy Spirit. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. What's that talking about? When Joseph knew he was going to die, he made arrangements that his body would be preserved in a coffin, a box, or whatever, and would be taken back with the people of Israel to the promised land. He made arrangements for that, even though it was going to be like 400 years later. Where did he get that faith? He got it from believing the promise of God that they would return to the land of Canaan, the promised land. And that's where he wanted to be buried. There's no evidence that the Israelites were going to be leaving Egypt. They were having a wonderful time there under Joseph. They had plenty to eat. They had some of the best land. But, of course, another pharaoh came to the throne who did not know Joseph, remember him that much, and therefore put Israel into slavery. So that when Moses came, they were more than willing to leave. But in the meantime, Joseph, when he died, he made sure that his bones would be returned to Canaan. 23, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. What was the king's edict? Well, that particular pharaoh had made a rule that all male children of that age would be put to death. But they had greater faith in God than fear of the king. And therefore, they kept Joseph safe 
uh, until he was discovered in the waters by Pharaoh's daughter, and she kind of adopted him. But verse 24 says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Yeah, he could have done anything that he wanted, but instead he was definitely attached to the people of God. And how did that happen? Well, you'll recall when Pharaoh's daughter found him, his sister mentioned to Pharaoh's daughter that she could find a woman to help bring Moses up, and that was his own mother. And so I'm sure he continued to have a relationship with his own family and realized that he had a choice to make, which verse 26 talks about. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What's the reproach of Christ? Well, a lot of Christians are feeling that these days as people who are becoming more and more immoral are attacking the Christian faith for not being tolerant enough of sinful behavior and so forth. But we Christians are willing to endure the reproach of Christ, the rejection of Christ. Why? In order that we look forward to the great reward And what is a great reward? That's talking about Judgment Day and heaven forever and ever and ever. So when you put those two together, the Apostle Paul talks about that quite a bit, is that if in this life only we have most pleasure, we are of all men to be most miserable. So in 27, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Who's the one who is invisible? None other than God himself. See, Joseph, I'm sorry, Moses would have known the promises of God. He would have been well aware that Joseph was still in a box or a casket with his body to be returned to Canaan. And so he endured all this problem because he trusted the invisible one, God himself. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. You see, every time you see the word faith, it always is attached to a promise. What was the promise? Well, the people were to put the blood of a slain lamb over the doorway and the lentils of the door, and the angel of death would pass over. That's where we get the word Passover. By faith, he kept that Passover so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Then, there he is at the Red Sea, blocked by the waters, with Egypt behind, ready to attack, By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. 
But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Now, you would say, how did that take faith? Well, you got to remember that the way the land became dry, there were two walls of water through which they passed. Uh, can, can you imagine having the Niagara Falls on each side of you as you're trying to go through dry land? What's keeping that water back? It takes faith to believe the promise of God. And Israel crossed over. Of course, when the Egyptians attempted to do the same, God allowed the water to come down and drown them. So finally, they get to the promised land 40 years later. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Now, we all know that story, hopefully, that God told them for seven days to be marching around Jericho, uh, blowing their trumpets, but on the seventh day, much noise was to occur with the trumpets and the people. Would you do that? Would you walk around a city that was well fortified, had great walls, and believe that you were going to be victorious over Jericho? That took faith. It took faith in a promise, even though there was no evidence that because of the trumpets and the noise, the walls would fall. But fall they did. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. See, the spies had gone to Jericho, and she hid them from the other people who were trying to kill them in Jericho. Rahab is really important. Why? Because in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, in Matthew chapter 1, it's talking about the folks who were living all the way up to the time of Jesus, beginning with Abraham. And it says, therefore, in verse 4, And Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Yes, she was married to one of the Israelites. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. In other words, both Ruth and Rahab, who are Gentiles, are part of the genealogy to Jesus. That's really interesting. And that's what Hebrews is talking about, the faith of Rahab. Because she could have been put to death when she was hiding the spies. The writer to the Hebrews in verse 32, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, you know, Daniel and the lion's den, Quench the power of fire. Those were 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put armies to flight. All you have to do is read the book of Judges, and you will find the people falling into sin, God sending various nations to punish them, then they repent of their sin, and God brings them a judge who brings peace to the land for a while until they fall into unbelief and sin again. But those judges and Gideon and Samson, as well as David, Samuel, and the prophets, wow, they were made strong out of weakness. How does that happen? Well, think of a child. Let's say they want to, they're at a playground and they want to go down the slide, but they can't climb the steps going up to the slide. So the father or mother comes over, picks them up, and lifts them up on top of the slide. They're weak, but now they have become strong. And that's how we who are weak become strong and mighty through the power of God. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Remember, you had the, the widow whose son died and Elijah raised from the dead. Also, so did Elisha. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life, which, of course, is heaven itself. They were tortured. All they had to do was deny Jesus. They refused to do that. And some of them were even eaten by lions in Nero's amphitheater. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Well, the Apostle Paul is a good example of that. They were stoned. And Paul was at the stoning of one of the individuals as he was holding the clothes of the person. They were sawn in two. Now, according to tradition, it is thought that Isaiah was one of those who was sawn in two. It's not in the Bible, but it's what rabbis believed that that's how he had died. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Well, John the Baptizer. Remember? Goats of a camel's hair, a skin of camel's hair, and eating items the same way Elijah had. So he was the new Elijah. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated of whom the world was not worthy. See, the world was not worthy to hear and receive these prophets because they were bringing good news to a world that didn't deserve it. And they wandered about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Remember, Elijah was on the mountain and there was a big sound of a storm. God wasn't in that or earthquake. He wasn't in that and lightning and thunder and all this, and finally in a still small voice. That was God. Verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. 
Whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I thought once God makes a promise, then people are going to receive it. What did they not receive? You have to go on. Verse 40. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now that term perfect is what God said at the end of the creation. All things were good. The Hebrew is tov, T-O-B. And what it means is everything was a working according as he had planned, according as he had promised. There was no sin in the Garden of Eden, and, and so everything was perfect. But why did they not receive what was promised? Because what was promised is to be made perfect in another Garden of Eden. And that's why the text goes on says, since God had provided something better for us, now, Hebrew is talking about us, Christians who are living at this time, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. The reason they did not receive what was promised, namely an eternal life in heaven, also in the body, their new bodies, is because that wasn't going to occur to Judgment Day. And if you read the scripture, it's very clear that those who are still alive will appear in the clouds at the same time that those whose bodies have been in the grave, and immediately they will have new bodies rejoined with their spirits and live in heaven eternally. So it's not that the promise will not be fulfilled. It's just it hadn't been fulfilled in their lifetime. It's going to be fulfilled when we will also be made perfect at the same time. And First Thessalonians, Matthew 25, there's a number of good verses that one can take a look at and recognize that Hebrews chapter 11 is a wonderful chapter that teaches faith is trust in promises from God, even though there's no evidence. And when we mean evidence, we're really talking what Luther talked about in the theologian of self-glory. He always wants to have rational reasons for what he believes. So it's really quite ridiculous from a worldly point of view to believe that anybody rose from the dead, including Jesus Christ. Yet we believe that and are willing to die for it. Not because it makes sense. Not because we have any evidence. But because we have the word of God that says he did rise from the dead for our justification. And through him, we also, on that day of judgment, will rise from the dead to live forever with Jesus Christ in the heavenlies. This is why Hebrews chapter 11 is really important because it shows, yes, Christians, believers will suffer, but in the long run, we have nothing to fear because God will be taking care of us. I'm Tom Baker. That's our 
Bible study for Hebrews 11 next Wednesday. We hope to have another Bible study. We'll let you know what that is when we get going on the broadcast. On tomorrow's broadcast, we say a lot of negative things about the ELCA in light of its official position now that is contrary to Christianity. However, every now and then, you hear, and we're going to be looking at a professor from ELCA that really makes sense as he questions the direction the ELCA is going. That's what we're going to be doing on the next Law and Gospel. Weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law and Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.